This is the Six Figure Creative Podcast, episode 187. Welcome to the Six Figure Creative Podcast, where our mission is to help you turn your creative passions into a stable, reliable income. If you're in audio, video, design, photography, or really any other creative field, and you just want to learn from other successful creatives, you're in the right place. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Creative Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Hood. I'm here with my big, bald, beautiful co-host in his nice lavender, purple, pinky hoodie, Christopher J. Graham. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm really good because we have an exceptional interview today. So exceptional, in fact, that you are visibly nervous, and I'm excited about that. I've never seen you nervous before. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little out of my league today. Just to really quickly intro the guest, we have Lisa Congdon on the interview. Say hey to everyone, Lisa. Hey, everyone. <laughs> yeah, so let me, the reason I'm a little bit nervous is because we found Lisa on, I believe it was the Creative Elements podcast, who was the host of that as one of our past guests on the show, friend of yours, Chris. And we found you on the podcast and we had to get you on. And then I started actually doing research into what, you, <laughs> what you've accomplished, what all you've done. And I'm, I've prepared the longest intro I've ever had for a guest right now, just to give our audience some context. Because if you're not in the illustrator design space, you may not know Lisa. My background is in, in music production. So I was not fully aware of everything that she's done. It's terrifying. I'm just going to read it really quick. So she is first and foremost, an illustrator or designer. She's worked with Target, Amazon, Crate and Barrel, REI, Martha Stewart Living. So that's just the tip of the iceberg for everyone. So she's also the author of at least 10 books, the least that I could find, some of which are named Whatever You Are, Be a Good One, amazing book title, Art Incorporated, The Essential Guide to Building Your Career as an Artist. So she's got the business acumen to to talk about that stuff. A book called A Glorious Freedom, Older Women Leading Extraordinary Lives. Love that book title as well. Finding Your Artistic Voice, The Essential Guide to Working Your Creative Magic. These book titles just get better and better with everyone. You're a podcaster. As of last April, you have a podcast called The Lisa Congdon Sessions. So everyone go open the app and, and Uh, listen to that and subscribe to that. And you've got an online store selling physical products, everything from like book prints, books, puzzles, journals, desk accessories, houseware items, stickers and tattoos, like so many just physical products. And you have online classes you sell as well. To top it off, you are named one of the 50 most inspiring people in companies, but people according to, uh, industry creatives published by Adweek. So all of this, by the way, and this is the, the coolest thing that I saw was you didn't actually even start seeing success and, and start getting traction until you were almost 40 years old. So anyone listening right now, that's, that's just since she was almost 40 years old, she's accomplished all that since then. So Lisa, now anyone can see why I'm kind of nervous now because I, it was hard to, it's hard to, I don't know. I can't put you in a box, Lisa. There's no box to put you in. So we're going to try to like unpack you and focus in on a couple of major things that I think you can help our audience achieve. But now welcome to the show that people know exactly what they're getting themselves into. Thank you. That was the most brilliant introduction I've ever had. Oh, that was my goal. That was my goal. All right. So when I, when we bring guests on the, on the show, I always, as a host, I always try to think of superpowers. Like what is their superpower? When I found you, I, I immediately spotted the superpower is like, it's pretty obvious. Like you have found this way to take this incredible skill that you was, that you, you have created, which is illustration design, and you've monetized it in ways that most people don't even dream of doing. And I want to dive into this, this transition you made, you, you started in illustration. It was more of a, I believe a passion. You were just trying to learn the skill of design and it slowly, but, but surely flourished into an actual business. But can we first just talk about the thing that everyone starts with, which is a passion. When did you find that design passion or the illustration passion? So when I was in my twenties, I got into a relationship with somebody who was a graphic designer, art director, and 
I'd never had exposure to that world at all growing up. I mean, my parents, I grew up in a like typical middle class family. Like we went to a, a museums occasionally and, and my mom was super creative, but I, I didn't, I didn't know that like being a creative person was a career you could actually have until I was in my twenties. And by that point I had gone to school to become an elementary school teacher. That's my dog. Um, taking it out. So, you know, I was really creative on a regular basis with the kids that I taught. I taught first and second grade for the most part. But then I was sort of like watching my partner, like do all the things. And I got really absorbed in not into being an artist, but more into like consuming illustration and design and art. And I started reading books and like looking at all of her books. And like, I don't know, I just started loving art and design. And really very much as an observer for a very long time. And then, you know, fast forward, we actually broke up. And <laughs> then I was like, I need something to kind of like fill this space in my life because we had been together for about 10 years. And so at this point, I'm in my early 30s and I start taking art classes and I start painting. And again, with no aspiration to become a professional artist couple years later, I'm still kind of on this creative path. And like the DIY movement starts happening on the internet. This is like 2003, 2004. I start a blog. I joined Flickr, which was a photo sharing site. I remember I Flickr. Started. Yep. Every, everyone over the age of, I don't know, 33 probably remembers Flickr. <laughs> and, you know, I, I started meeting people and I started seeing pictures of what like living a creative life could look like there's photographers and illustrators and fine artists like posting their work. And, you know, the internet was becoming a space for creative people to share what they were doing. And I was like, Oh, maybe I can do this, you know? So I started, you know, kind of making more stuff and falling in love with the process of, of creativity. And like, I was just so excited by it every day that I didn't even want to go to my job. I just wanted to, to like sit around and make stuff. And I, I didn't make stuff that looked anything like what I make now. I was very much a beginner. It was all crap. I didn't know that at the time, but I, I looking back, I can, I can see that now. It was all crap, but like I had that passion. I loved doing it. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out how to make this my life. I see other people doing it. I know it's possible. I don't know what I'm doing. I have zero education. I have like, I had no mentors. I had nothing really at the time, but I was like, I'm going to figure this out. And little did I know, nobody really knew, knows what they're doing, even people who have gone to art school, which is why I ended up writing a book on kind of how to make a living as an artist, because I, I ended up kind of figuring it out. Um, it started with me just loving to create stuff and also loving to see people's reaction to what I created. And this and, you know, the fact that social media was becoming a space for for sharing kind of helped, I think, prod my career along. Yeah. And if you, if you Google Lisa's name, you will find her art style. It is very well-defined now. And it took you, I guess it took you a number of years to get to that design style that you now like own today. And like what your brand is behind, like everything about you do, what you do is just unique and cool and colorful and fun. And you've probably seen it and didn't realize it. I get that all the time from people. <laughs> yeah. And so you started the way that so many people, I think our, our listeners right now can, can resonate with because it was that passion first approach. Like you found something, you just love to do it. You like, you, you like doing it more than going to your day job. But the, the disconnect that people have is when they, they just stop there. There's, it's like, I'm passionate about it. Maybe I want to make money doing it, but there is more skill. It takes skills beyond just the creative skills. And you found a way to do that. 
Can you talk about that transition from like, you are passion first, you are developing the skill. Now we're going to learn to monetize it your very first time. What did that transition look like and what skills were you forced to develop during that period? Yeah. So I was really lucky in that because this is a second career for me. I, and so for any of you listening who, you know, have an office job or have had another career, even if in your mind, it's not related to, you know, the creative endeavor that you're wanting to embark on or, or are embarking on, like it is, you have skills that you don't even know that you have that are going to contribute to that. And I, I of course didn't realize that either. Like I was like, Oh, you know, because by the time I left my job to go do this, I was working at a non-education nonprofit and had been there for about eight years. And I had project management skills. I had client skills. I had relationship skills. And all of those things are really important in building your business. You can be the greatest artist in the world and have all of the best like technical skills. But if you don't know how to talk to people, you don't have to put yourself out there. You know, you're not going to succeed. Um, or at least succeed very quickly. So I tapped into all of that stuff and just sort of understood because I had all of this work experience that I needed to start building relationships with people who were in the industry. I didn't know anyone. I had to start networking. I had to get myself on social media, even though at the time it was at its infancy. So I just started doing all of these things and continually putting my very, at the time, crappy work into the world. Like, I think it was helpful that I didn't know how crappy it was partly. And then also maybe even when I did, I was like, I just, you know, I'm not there yet. And I know I'm not there yet, but I'm going to keep putting it out there. And slowly I started building an audience for my work. And I feel like, you know, there's never been a better time to be an artist because we have all these platforms that didn't exist 15, 20, 25 years ago. And you had to know a gatekeeper at the time. You had to know somebody who owned a gallery or somebody who owned a recording studio or a publisher or an agent. You had to know someone who could help you break through. And today you can break through yourself just by putting your work into the world. So that's what I started doing. And I started, you know, making friends. People started inquiring, like, how can I work with you? And I also started putting into place kind of time management and organizational skills that I had learned in the workplace. You know, I got to the point where I was, you know, wanting to get more work. And so I would make a daily schedule for myself. And, you know, at first I worked part-time. I didn't leave my day job immediately. I kind of did a lot of things in order to pay my bills, like worked part-time at my day job, opened a store with my friend, and then made work at night and on the weekends. Eventually I quit the job, only had the store with my friend, and, you know, made art maybe two days a week and on the weekend. And then eventually I sold, we sold the store and then I started making art full time. So I did it gradually. I really kind of used a lot of the skills that I learned at my job for how to manage my time and like, you know, chunk out all the projects that I wanted to do in order to put into the world so that I might get future work, client work that I was starting to get and you know, all the other basic stuff, like having a website and updating my portfolio and like keeping myself current. So a lot of what I did was like using a lot of the stuff that I had learned in my previous career. And I actually feel like second career creatives are sometimes the most amazing because we know, like we know a lot of stuff that, you know, 22 year olds fresh out of school don't know about that stuff. 
I love that approach so much because like so many people, they, they feel like they're stuck at this day job that's serving them in no way, shape or form, but they don't realize that they're in what I call your Rocky montage phase of life. Where it's like, <laughs> everyone knows like in Rocky, you see the movie and he does all these things where he's like in the woods and he's running upstairs and he's throwing his arms up and he's celebrating. And it's like this long slog of work he's putting in condensed down into this like 30 second, like music fed montage that you see on screen to kind of represent the journey he's gone through. And so many people are on that journey right now. They're in the day job that sucks, but it's helping them develop the skills that they need so that they can finally succeed when they finally jump all in and people ignore that. And I, I look back sometimes with a little bit of jealousy on some of my friends that had that more formal training in a day job or corporate structure where they learned a lot of skills that I just lack as a self-taught, no college, bootstrap DIY um, business owner. Like I didn't learn a lot of things and I've had to learn the hard way and I continue to pay the price of having to learn the hard way, bring it all back. That Rocky montage scene that a lot of people are living right now is such a good way of looking at these, these hard, long slogs of your life that you're not necessarily loving because it's serving you in other ways that will help down the road. Well, and I think that I have a, I have a kind of an intense question, Lisa. So I'm in a montage in my own life right now. I'm going through a divorce. My life is just, there's a lot going on. And, you know, I had one of these experiences where, you know, my marriage fell apart. I got into therapy. I'm looking at this love of, you know, love of my life. I'm losing this relationship. But that spurred me towards growth. And I'm wondering, Lisa, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, you're in this relationship for 10 years. You kind of got into art through that. Were there any sort of like epiphanies or like things that drove you to personal growth or you got into therapy or, or what were those things that got you on the journey that's clearly gotten to you to where you are now? I love that question. Well, one of the things I realized when that relationship ended was that I had been a sort of serial monogamous for my, since I was like, you know, <laughs> had my first relationship. That resonates with me. <laughs> I mean, aside from my college years where I like dated, but wasn't really in a long-term relationship, like I had always been in a long-term relationship and like no more than six months to, you know, nine months had passed before I met the next person. And then I didn't really know who I was. I didn't know what made me happy. I didn't know what lit me up. My life would always become about the other person, fixing the other person, living vicariously through the other person. You know, I was perfectly happy in some of those relationships while the relationship was going well, but I didn't kind of honor or even think about like, what did I want from my life? And when this, that relationship ended, I started really thinking about, like I, I dove into therapy and started thinking about like, what is it that I want out of my life? What makes me happy? And I had no idea. So the therapy helped me figure that out. We did a lot of talking about that and one of the things that immediately started happening for me was like, I started making stuff and it was like kind of how I found joy, but also how I kind of started to work out a lot of the angst that I was having in something that felt purposeful and like forward moving, leaning into that, like ended up becoming a career. But it's so weird to me to think like, if I hadn't leaned into that, I might be like an elementary school principal or something now. And I'd probably be a great one. And, you know, I, I don't know that it was inevitable that this happened. It's just that I like leaned into my urges. Like I let myself, I was kind of at rock bottom and I let myself just, I don't know, try something that I wasn't going to be competing in or, you know, I was also a competitive swimmer at the time. And I was like in this kind of 
worked in a nonprofit organization that was like filled with a bunch of PhDs and I was the only one who didn't have one. And so I had to always prove myself. Art was like the one thing that I was doing just for fun. Now, of course, my career's changed and like now there's all kinds of pressure attached to what I do. But at the time, it was just this joyful thing that was like no one had to see it. There was no social media yet. There was no sharing on the Internet. And it really just opened me up. And I think therapy ultimately got me to art. And that breakup got me to therapy. So like, thank you, relationship. Also, that person, also, you know, as I mentioned, happened to be a creative person. And so like, I think I was like, well, why not me? Like, why is she the one who it's like, she's the maker? Like, I could do that, too. I have ideas. And I allowed myself permission to I was I grew up in a family that I was like the not gifted or not creative one. And so it was a big <laughs> turn for me after that breakup to be like, Hey, well, maybe I love all, I love art and design now. I love looking at it. Maybe I should try to make some. And so I'm going to start taking some classes. And like, I gave myself permission to do that in a way that, that I never had before. And, and it all led to this amazing life. I want to, I, I love like, this is such a good conversation. And I know our listeners are like, are resonating with this. Cause this is like every, everyone can, can put some sort of similarity, like similar story that ties to what you're doing. But there's, there's something you did differently than I think everyone else that we're going to talk about, which is you took all these skills that you've developed, these soft skills, these hard skills, the design skills, and you found clever, fun ways to monetize these skills. And I want to get into that because I think that's the, that's, I think that's your superpower is like taking these skills and then just multiplying them in ways that people are not seeing the, the paths that you see, you know, it's like you, you have this weird sixth sense where you're able to see the, all the paths you could go with your, with your skills. But before we even get into that, I want to talk about something that I think holds so many people back of perfectionism or fear of failure. You could have easily taken the skill and just kept developing it forever and ever and ever and getting better and getting better and never actually doing anything with it. How did you actually break from that? Is that, did you struggle with it? Or was it just like natural for you to just say, I've got the skill, I'm going to go monetize it now. I think there's definitely people in between, but there's mostly two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are perfectionists and feel really uncomfortable putting anything out into the world until they like it or feel that they've sort of like arrived at this place where it's ready for consumption, monetary or otherwise. And then there's people like me who are not perfectionists and are ready to put stuff out into the world, actually potentially before it's even ready. <laughs> and I get that from my mom. My mom is like this amazing creative person and she could give a shit what people think. She's like, does something. Sometimes, you know, it's not perfect. She just puts it out there. And I got that from her. Also, people will often say to me, oh, you're so fearless. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Like, I feel fear just like the, uh, the next person. I have anxiety. I get paranoid that people aren't going to like something. I just feel the fear and I do it anyway. Like, and I do think that's partly came with age since I embarked on this path in my 30s and really came into my own voice in my 40s like I was ready to just be like the world's not going to come crashing down if I put something out that nobody likes or that gets criticized right like I will live but I'm never going to make progress unless I keep taking these steps so yeah I think that I'm just I'm that person who's on that end of the spectrum where I have good I have like a particular point of view and I've developed a certain style and I have a voice and all of that took me a while even before it was fully formed I was still understood that I was heading somewhere including having my work become better but if I sat on it for too long I was going to fall behind 
And I'm so glad that I had the courage to put my work out. Even though now I look back at work that's on Flickr or that like it's because it still lives there. Or, you know, or like even early work that I was doing in the illustration world, you know, eight years ago when I first, you know, signed with an agent or whatever, or that, that was actually more than way more than eight years ago, 14 years ago, whatever. I cringe, right? Like, oh, I can't believe that, like, that, that, you know, sometimes people will post my old work and I get, you know, but I, at the time I understood, like, this isn't perfect. I know that I have a long way to go, but I need to keep, keep this cycle and, you know, of going of, making work and putting out into the world, making work and putting out into the world. And I'm so glad I did that because I got to where I am. And now I'm actually really proud of my work and really comfortable with it. For a long time, I wasn't, but I still did it. Do you feel like that courage to put yourself out there to do things that might be criticized was connected to the healing that you did in therapy? 100%. I think that like one of the things I learned was that like when you go through a really big breakup of somebody that that you either adored or continue to adore and that you was such a big part of your life, you have to come to the realization that nothing is permanent. You may actually have a relationship forever, but this idea of impermanence or of not getting attached, so attached to, to anything being a certain way was such important, I don't know, spiritual and emotional growth for me. Like also this idea that I had agency so I really started to believe that if I could create kind of miserable circumstances for myself, even though I'm a very privileged person, I also had the power to like create a sense of happiness in myself and that creating a sense of happiness was going to require risk, um, risk in falling in love with somebody who might dump me someday, risk in putting work out into the world that that might be rejected, you know, but that no risk, no gain, right? And even though nothing lasts forever, or at least exists in the same way that it did even five minutes ago, even when you're in a relationship forever, it's always, you know, changing. Um, so this idea of like, I know that nobody can do anything perfectly. No one can put any, anything into the world that is perfect. And I've got to start somewhere. So I'm going to put my imperfection into the world. And actually what I found was that that's what made people relate to me. That's what help build my audience was just that I was a regular person not putting perfect stuff into the world and people were relating to not just my artwork but also like what I had to say about it and that that was part of my voice and that all started in in therapy I think and like really understanding that there was no I think that like when we grow up we imagine that that we're going to arrive at some place sometime when we're in our 20s or in 30s where we'll have everything figured out and everything will be easy and we'll have a perfect life and a perfect partner and a perfect career if we could only just figure that out we'd be set and that is the biggest lie if you can embrace like imperfection and messiness and impermanence and all of that stuff you're actually going to end up being a happier person if you can kind of relax into all of that I mean, at least that's what I found. And that was so help. That's such a helpful mindset for like putting your, putting your work into the world, even when you're, you know, it's not, it's, there's, it's, it's not there yet. Yeah. Well, so uh, Brian, let me add one more kind of thought to this to bring it back to the conversation that you mentioned, Brian, about, you know, monetizing and figuring out how to turn this into a business. I'm so into this conversation and I'm so excited about it because I feel like for creatives, there is a resistance to therapy. There's a resistance to that type of growth. 
that often it creates a lot of arrested development and a lot of stunting and, and just unhappiness. And that was absolutely Oh, me. I feel it right now. I'm like, I'm like uncomfortable with the conversation being too like <laughs> emotional. I'm like, let's get to the business stuff, y'all. And I know a lot of our listeners are feeling the same way, but you're touching a good topic, Chris, which is just like having good mental health is an important part of, of growing as a... Let me frame this in a way that, Brian, you're going to love. Lisa, would you say that your success is a lagging indicator of the work that you did to yourself in therapy. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Because so much of how I have become a six-figure creative is like trying things and risk-taking. And a lot of that is like, you have to get comfortable taking risks. And in order to take financial risks or emotional risks or whatever risk you're struggling with, you have to accept the fact that you might fail. So that's like, there is no way potentially, I mean, that's not true. I mean, there are probably some things that feel, some ways that people make money or become, quote, successful or well-known or whatever that have been sort of handed to them. But 99% of the time, um, people have to go through all kinds of trial and error and like messiness and failure in order to eventually arrive at a place where things are actually happening for them. Not that you ever stay in one place for very long, as I mentioned, but yes, I mean, I got comfortable taking kind of creative risks, which made me more comfortable taking financial risks or creative risks are also financial. You know, I was putting work out into the world and then eventually art directors and creative directors at big brands started contacting me saying, we want to work with you. And we love your style. I never would have gotten there had I not put the work out and had I not continued to kind of like plod through the uncomfortable part of like practicing my skill, my art skills over and over and, you know, and then continuing to share, you know, the best of that work. So, so much connection between my emotional work and, and my like financial success, I think. And I would a hundred percent agree. I, I think the journey is clear on that. And I think so many of our listeners, they struggle with that fear of failure. And I love that you said you still had the fear. You're not a psycho. You had the fear. It was all there. But then courage is literally having the fear. And despite the fear, you're still taking action. And that's what courage is. And I think the work you put in is what helped give you the courage in order to keep pushing forward, even though you were uncomfortable, even though it might've been facing failure, even though it might've been doing something that you, you were not unsure, you were not sure of the outcome. And I think the work was a huge part of that. So just to talk about this, going back to the soft skills or the hard skills, the things you were learning around creativity and becoming a better creator, really just to bring this back to business, because that's, I love talking business. What was the, like, what, what was the first way you started to, to turn those skills into actual money? Like that's what we talk about in the podcast is six figure creative is like, how do you turn these creative skills into something that is actually putting money in the bank while not violating our creativity? Right. So, I mean, the first thing was like, I'm going to try to sell my work, right? So that gives me the opportunity to make stuff and then also monetize it. And I came onto the scene like around the time I'm not on Etsy anymore, but Etsy is like a giant platform now that you don't even have to be, a, you know, somebody who makes things by hand to be on there. But like at the time it was in its infancy and it was like the first platform for creatives to sell work. And so I got an Etsy account and within a few years, I became a top seller. But in those first few years, I was like scrambling to get one order a month. Right. Like, but I just kept making work testing like okay these people follow me on Flickr will they like this thing you know will the 300 people who like me on Flickr want to buy this set of cards that I had printed you know and I just you know oh that didn't go very well so now I'm going to try a print 
and I would like outsource my printing and, you know, gamble that if I printed 30, they would all sell, you know, <laughs> it was just like little, <laughs> little stuff like that. I also was really lucky in the very beginning. I knew somebody, I met somebody in San Francisco where I lived at the time who was a professional illustrator. She's like, you should try to find an agent. And I was like, I don't even have anything in my portfolio yet, really. And, you know, I ended up signing with this woman who saw something in me that I didn't even see. I had an art show in San Francisco at a little tiny shop that sold clothes and they put my art on the wall. Somebody from Chronicle Books, who's been my publisher ever since, walked in and was like, oh, that painting, we want to put it on the cover of a journal. And it ended up on the cover of their catalog. I mean, these were some of the first things that happened for me. There was a com There's a company called Poketo, who's based in LA. They saw some of my work on Flickr ended up licensing it for some of their products. That stuff is like such small potatoes for me now, but at the time it was like such a big deal. I cold emailed a couple of like really tiny galleries and asked if I could have a show. You know, I just continued to say yes to every opportunity, even if it felt off brand for me. I was like, I'm doing it all. Um, one of the things that I highly recommend people do is just keep making the songs, keep writing the books, keep making the art, even though you don't have a deal for it yet and just keep sharing it because you'll never know who might want to acquire it eventually, even if it means you have to have a day job in the beginning. And so once I started, you know, getting steady sales on Etsy and I started kind of showing my work and selling it and I had an agent and I started getting illustration jobs. I remember, I think the very first year I was self-employed, I might've made like $45,000, which by the way, is not bad. I hustled my butt off. And I think every year for like another five or six years, that was like still, you know, pretty low. And then all of a sudden, everything kind of changed for me. And I think the important lesson there is that you can't expect it to happen overnight. Sometimes it does, especially now that the internet kind of goes viral around certain things. Some people have pretty instantaneous success. But it took me about five years to get to the place where I began, I began to become known. My work was sought after. I started to be paid, you know, more money. And I have such diverse income streams, like from, as you mentioned, making books to doing illustration and design jobs to teaching to, uh, you know, all, all the things. And I really recommend that creatives try to figure out different ways that they can monetize their work. Because if one dries up, you've got another one. Or if one is slow for a while, you've got another one. And then ultimately, I still do all of them. And I just have employees who help me execute because I can afford that. So you've gone from like someone that you would just consider yourself maybe an illustrator or designer to now you were like, you were a business mogul, Lisa. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it's really weird. That probably happened a while ago. But I did not start to think of myself as a CEO, a business owner, a, like a boss until... The last year and I was so conservative about hiring. Now I'm like, how did I go so long without having, you know, I have two full-time employee salaried employees and I have one um, part-time freelancer who does my strategy. And I think, gosh, I should have done this a long time ago. So it certainly had enough money to pay staff, but I was so nervous. And I actually think the return on investment has been amazing. Like I actually can make more money now that I have people working for me. And there's, you know, a whole other conversation we can have about that. But Yes, I went from somebody who could barely pay her bills, who couldn't even pay her quarterly taxes. I make, I pay more in quarterly taxes now a quarter than I made, you know, 
that first year. So I've been there. <laughs> my life has, has completely evolved. And I'm really glad it evolved as slowly as it did, because I think if it had happened quickly, I wouldn't have been able to handle it. And every, it's been incremental. And I've learned so much along the way. And I've been ready for the next step every single time because it's happened so organically and so relatively slowly. Like, I'm grateful for that. You mentioned Etsy and selling kind of the physical products thing. And I think that's an area a lot of designers would like to do. They have their, their eye on that. They have the skill of like creating cool things. But, but bringing that over to the physical world, I think, is a world that a lot of people are uncomfortable with. They don't understand. Etsy seems like the safe bet. Would you still recommend people doing Etsy first? Or did you, I know you transitioned to your own store. I think you even have a physical store now, right? Like an actual retail location for your art, which is amazing. So can you talk about that transition from just having the skills of illustration to bringing it into like the physical world? Yeah. So, well, first of all, I think I do recommend that people, Etsy is great because it's like a shopping mall. People don't have to know who you are to find you. So they can go in and, you know, let's say you specialize in screen prints and, you know, animals and somebody types in elephant screen print because they're decorating their children's room with, you know, an elephant theme. They, they might find you, right? And they would never have found you if they'd done an SEO search or a Google search, right? Because nobody knows who you are. I also think Etsy, Etsy now takes very high fees. And that's ultimately why I left and started a Shopify shop. And I can afford to pay those fees and, you know, integrated shipping and all of that. But Etsy's still, I think, a really viable option for a lot of people. And then I, I actually, one of the transitional things I did before I became full-time artist was one of my early, early, early shows was at this little shop in New York City called Rare Device. And this woman, it was in New York City, and she emailed me and was like, I would love for you to do a window display in my shop as like a show. So I did, and it was really successful. And I sold everything in the show. And we had a little opening party. And then this woman and I became really good friends. And she was like, hey, uh, my husband and I are moving back to San Francisco. They They used to live there. I didn't know her then. And she's like, would you like to open a shop with me there because I had been talking about how I really wanted to leave my job but I didn't feel like I had was earning enough as an artist and so I did this transitional thing where I opened this storefront with her in San Francisco when she moved back and we owned that store together for about five years and then we sold it to a woman named Giselle who still owns it to this day in fact before I came on this call we have the same business coach and we were like on a call together so it full circle Anyway, so I learned from Rena, my former business partner at Rare Device, I learned how to run a storefront, like how to sell physical products. It was such a great education for me and kind of how wholesale works, um, which I at the time wasn't doing yet with my own stuff. So that was such a great education. And so we ended up selling the business because my art career started to take off. She had a baby and she wanted to try something else. So when I moved to Portland, you know, from San Francisco, I was like, oh man, like here you can get a bigger studio. You can like afford, you know, San Francisco is so expensive and Portland is getting more expensive, but it's definitely relatively inexpensive. And so I just ended up eventually getting a really big studio and was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to open a storefront in the front of my studio because I have enough space. So I did that about four years ago. I love it. And now I actually have somebody, a retail and product development director who like basically handles all of my retail. She used to run other retail shops and she's a great merchandiser and I don't really even touch it anymore, but I love having a storefront. We're only even open like one or two days a week, but like people can come in and touch things and look at things. 
how are you making me want to have a storefront right now? <laughs> this sounds so fun. <laughs> it is fun. It's great. I love it so much. And now I have enough product to fill an entire store. So speaking of the product, how do you decide what you're going to create, what you're going to print on? Like, do you, do you have like a testing area? Do you do like, are you the nerdy split test person where you want to optimize and figure out what's going to sell before you print it on a, you know, like, how do you, how do you go about the decision process for what you're going to create? Her name is Amy. <laughs> She's my head of um, retail and product development. In the old days, when I was by myself, I would, you know, test paper. I bought a printer so that I could print on demand because I realized that that was going to be more cost effective for me than sending a file to a printer and saying, print, print a hundred of this, not knowing whether I was going to be able to sell all of them. So we print everything, almost everything in house, not the cards and other products, but the actual like art prints that we do. And Sometimes I do screen, I hire a screen printer to do some limited editions and so much of my work is licensed by other companies. Similar to publishing a book, you can license your artwork on a journal cover or a mug or a, so I work with a lot of companies who license my work. And so I get royalties from, from that. I can also buy that stuff back wholesale to sell in my own shop. So about half the stuff in my shop is, is puzzles and stuff that, I've, that I've purchased that have my own work on it from companies that have licensed for me about the other half is like products that we, we make ourselves. So we do like our own scarves and blankets and pretty soon we're going to have a line of ceramics. And, you know, so Amy goes through the process of like finding vendors, getting samples of materials, getting test prints. You know, we just had our first line of trucker hats and we like, you know, picked out the thread and like, it's really fun. And then, you know, sometimes things sell out and we're like, that was a great idea. And sometimes you, you order 300 blankets and you only sell a hundred. And I'm like, <laughs> I make enough money now doing all the things that I can experiment a little bit and take some, take some risks. But yeah, it's, it's a process. And I, and I'm really grateful to have a person on my team who is a great designer has a very like advanced skill in discerning quality of, of potential like materials for products and, and does all of the back end stuff for me so that I can create more of my own stuff. We don't ever want to be so big that we have to have a warehouse, you know, because we ship everything ourselves. It's really important to me to stay small enough that we can, t every, we can touch everything. I don't, I'm not ready to give that over. I don't, I'm not saying I'll never do it, but I like having everything in house and we have a really we took over the space next door and now we have a fulfillment center and all the things. So what I want to ask about though, is I hear, I hear people, they, they hear this story or I'm sure they're thinking like, okay, so this sounds like a lot. I have to get an Amy on my team. So someone who can do all of the, like the, the grunt work. Right. And so they're going to hold off on doing anything until they do that. They got to get a fulfillment center built out. So now there's a huge upfront cost on capital to even before they can start this. Like, what would you say to someone who's like hearing the story and thinking like they're trying to compare Lisa, who's like on chapter a hundred of her book with like someone who's at chapter one right now? As I mentioned earlier, like I, let's see, I've been doing this since I quit my job in 2008. And what is it? We're at 2022. So, I mean, how many years is that? Six, 14, 16, something like that. Long time. And I just promoted Amy to that position a year ago. So that's another thing, you know, and I just hired Erica, who's my new head of operations in October. Like. I'm, I just took over that other space a year ago. Um, we just literally moved my shipping out of my garage a year ago. So I really am good at pushing the envelope to the point where 
I'm not going to spend the money until I'm sure it's going to pay off. I mean, it's still a big financial risk. I, I, I'm better at taking risks on smaller amounts, but like paying salaries and like paying rent on another space is a little bit trickier for me. And so while I'm a risk taker, I'm also like, I'm pretty conservative because I don't want my business to fail. And so it is this balance of like risk and like smart decisions, risk. and I mean, how many startups, I'm not a startup because I'm totally self-funded, but like how many startups have failed because they spent too much money on a fancy office space or whatever too soon. Countless. And countless. And I didn't want to be that person. And I'm so glad I didn't because pandemic happened and, you know, the world completely changed. So I would say to those people, like, take this one step at a time. And that might mean for a period of time, you're going to be working your freaking ass off or asking your partner for help or just limiting what you can do and provide to your customers because you just don't have the bandwidth. And then you hit this sort of tipping point or kind of critical mass, and then you go to the next step. And it's really about figuring out when the tipping point happens and like when to when to make the big move. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the important thing to remember is like comparing yourself to me if you're in year two or three is silly because I'm in year 14 or 15 or 16, right? Like it can't, it probably could have happened sooner, but even the soonest this could have happened is probably maybe two or three years ago. I just put it off a little bit. That's still, you know, there's still a long trajectory for most people. Some people can do it way faster than I did, you know, but it just takes time. One of the things that I keep thinking about as you're telling us your story is the other day my mom printed out the first chapter of a book uh, by Glennon Doyle, and she's trying to get me to read this. My mom has never, ever, ever printed out like photocopied a book. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's adorable. She stapled all the pages together. It is illegal, but that's just that's totally a my mom thing to do. And, you know, Glennon has popularized this phrase, you can do hard things. And as I'm listening to your story, this phrase just keeps coming back into my mind again and again and again of, okay, well, what if you decide to do the hard things? You'll be able to do harder things and then harder things and then harder things. You just seem like that's your story. You had to do the hard things and the profit of doing hard things is the ability to do harder things. That's so cool. It is. And I think that like, granted, you know, that is a, that is in in its in and of itself a risk, right? Like doing hard things. Like we live in a grind culture, you know, where you're supposed to like you know put your head down and like not complain and do all the things. And I definitely have that like the grit and the like the stealth kind of beaten into me probably when I was a kid, not literally. But I am one of those people who can kind of like suck it up and do the hard thing. I'm a gravel cyclist and gravel cycling is like one of the hardest sports you can do, especially endurance gravel cycling. And like there is part of me that like likes the likes any challenge, even when I'm not very good at something. There's something very satisfying about that. I also love Glennon and I love that sentiment because especially in the last couple of years, like we all feel very downtrodden. We all feel like if there was any chance that I was going to be successful before, like now it's really, you know, diminished because the economy's, you know, who knows what's going on and the country's divided and like all the things and everybody feels really hopeless. And I think one of the things that I like to lend to the conversation is something similar to that. Like you have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. You have to keep going, um, keep going, keep going, keep going, but not at the expense of your mental health. And I'm sure Glennon would agree with me. Like, 
one of the things that I've had to balance is this determination to do hard things, but also to take care of, not at the expense of taking care of myself and getting enough sleep at night and eating well and having a healthy relationship with my partner. Those are all really important too. And sometimes taking care of yourself is the hard thing to do. Sometimes it's easier to just go the hustle than it is to pay attention to your needs. Oh, that's my story. hundred percent. Yeah. I did. I did all the other hard things other than taking care of myself and then paid for it. But, you know, thank God it got me into therapy and it got me into this pattern that, that you are setting, setting the bar, setting an example for of like, okay, I got into therapy. I did the hard thing. What's the next hard thing? What's the next scary thing that I can do to, to self-actualize, to figure out who am I and what am I supposed to be doing here? Yeah. Difficult things can be such a gift if you like, if you like have the attitude of, I'm going to learn everything I can about myself through this experience and how to, you know, evolve or become a better person or versus kind of like focusing on all the mistakes I made that led to this thing, this hard thing happening or how I'm unlovable or whatever, right? Like focusing on how I can turn this into something that's going to be helpful in the world or be helpful to myself. And I, I sometimes think if people, if we all had more of an attitude of like, agency versus being a victim, the world would be a much better place. Amen to that. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think this is a good place to kind of wrap this episode up. I think your story is inspiring. I feel like anyone who's listening right now can, can look at what you've done and what you've accomplished and look at it as fuel to the fire to get them to that next scary thing through the hard work uh, and hopefully out the other side to experience the success, overwhelming success that Lisa has experienced. So Lisa, is there a place that you would like to send our audience to learn more about you or to experience what you're doing or anything? Like, where do you want them to go to, to find more about you? There are three main places. My website, which is just my name, lisacongdon.com, has links to pretty much everything that I'm about to mention, but it also has, a you know, that's where people buy things. That's where my shop is. And, you know, a link to my podcast, which is the next place. The first episode of my podcast is basically a more fleshed out version of of the story, a lot of the story that I told today. And then I, I kind of balance um, monologue episodes with interviews with people who I think are really inspiring and amazing in the creative world and actually just like the world writ large. I've interviewed plenty of non-artists. And Instagram is kind of the place where I spend my most time like interacting with people and kind of sharing what I'm up to. Perfect. We'll have links to all those places on our show notes for anyone to listen to. And if you're in a podcast app right now, whatever you're listening on, just look up the Lisa Congdon se sessions and you'll find her podcast on there. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Lisa. Oh my gosh, Brian and Chris, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. This, I'm not just gushing here. That's my favorite interview we've ever done. That was, as we're doing it, I'm thinking Aww. like, this is, this is what our podcast <laughs> is supposed to be. This balance of, of doing the work, the mental health, and the creative success and, you know, actually using good business practices. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm.